0: If you could make your way to your seats, it's good to see all of you this morning. It's awesome to hear the passing of the peace, coming from genuine hearts, desiring each other's well-being. Today we're going to look at the next portion of Scripture as we expound the book of Nehemiah. We've been hearing some cogent and clear messages out of Nehemiah, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, and through chapter 1, we've been looking at Nehemiah's heart, brokenness over a wall that's broken, and people who are ashamed, he goes to the Lord because he is confident of who the God of heaven truly is, the great and awesome God, and he prays, he trusts the Lord and. And uh, the God of heaven, it's interesting as we listen to chapters 1 and chapters, chapter 2 preach to us that He is the God of heaven who actually comes down on earth. And we see in chapter 1 that He actually entered into Nehemiah. He put something of Himself in there, His will. And then in chapter 2, we see the very mighty hand of God upon Nehemiah. So we see some amazing things happening as Nehemiah trusts the Lord and and asks for much uh, mercy. We go through this drama. We go through this narrative. And then we hit chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them to Nehemiah chapter 3. Last week, my, my wife um, made me smile because I was thinking the same thing. I've been reading the Bible for about close to 40 years. And uh, she leans over to me and whispers in my ear and she says, the hardest thing about Nehemiah is finding it. Where is it again? <laughs> Nehemiah is an interesting place as to where it is. It's not chronological and so you've got to find it. So I'm giving you time as I'm just rambling to find Nehemiah chapter 3, And that's where we will start this message. Nehemiah chapter 3, what I ask you to do now is rise with me. And what we're going to do is we're going to hear the whole chapter, 32 verses. You can close your eyes and envision the silhouette of the wall The title of this message is The Restoration of the Wall. You can close your eyes and picture how this restoration occurred. You can watch it in your Bible. Nehemiah chapter 3 starting with verse 1. Listen with reverence and joy as God speaks to us. Chapter 3.
1: The high priest rose up with his brothers and priests and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur the son of Imri built. The sons of Ahasenaah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them Meramoth the son of Uriah the son of Hakaz repaired. And next to them Meshullam the son of Berechiah son of Meshezebel, repaired, and next to them Zadok the son of Banah, repaired, and next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Jehoiada, the son of Peseah, and Meshelem, the son of Pesadiah repaired the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranothite. The men of Gibeon and of Mizbah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them Jediah, the son of Heramuth, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaneah, repaired. Malchijah, the son of Harim, and Hashab, the son of Pahath-Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Elohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Melchijah, the son of Rachab, ruler of the district of Beth Acharam, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kol Jose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shalah, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Beth Zur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him the Levites repaired, Reham the son of Bani, next to him Ashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kila, repaired for his district. After him their brothers repaired, Babai, the son of Hanadad, ruler of half the district of Kila, next to him Azair, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib the high priest. After him Merimuth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him the priests. The men of the surrounding area repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Masaiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benuai, the son of Hanadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Halal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Pedaiah, the son of Parash, and the temple servants living on Ophel repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him the Tekoites repaired, another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them Zadok, the son of Amer, repaired opposite his own house. After him Shemaiah, the son of Shekaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him Hananiah, the son of Shalamiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him Meshallam, the son of Barakiah repaired opposite his chamber. After him Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate, and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheet gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants
0: repaired. Gracious Father, I want to come to you and ask that you will do your matchless, miraculous work in our midst. Your word is heard, and now help us to understand, appreciate, apply in such a way that you're honored, we're transformed, and others will see the reflection of the radiance of your worth found in the Lord Jesus. Help us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you are wondering why we changed that around a little bit. Instead of the preacher reading the Word of God, we had a professional read God's Word. I'll I'll let you wonder why that was. But in 32 verses, here's a list. Did you hear it? How many have read that before? Thank you for your honesty. Some of you need to probably repent after this is over. We, we tend to skim these passages because they're like, what is that? How am I going to get a devotion out of that? How can I hear the Lord and be transformed and get nourishment and encouragement from, from that? This is a list. In the midst of one of the most dramatic books in the Bible... Ezra and Nehemiah form one book, and when you start in and read Ezra and Nehemiah, you're just caught up in it. It's a first-person plural and singular, and you, you hear the back and forth, and it's narrative, and it's easy to enter in. It's engaging, and it's dramatic. There's a lot of intrigue in the midst of all this, and it's one of the most fascinating books in the Bible. And then you hit Nehemiah chapter 3. Well, initially, I was upset with Garrison, who assigned me Nehemiah chapter 3. But as I begin to read carefully, repeatedly, prayerfully, I began to see perhaps at least a glimpse into this for Veritas, and I can hardly wait to preach this. What we see in this passage is is a picture of the restoration of the wall. It's a picture. It's a freeze frame. Chapters 1 and 2 are going along, and then it's as though the writer, the Holy Spirit through a human writer, hits the pause button, and it's a freeze frame. It's a picture. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he resumes and hits play. You can see that in in the latter part of chapter 2, you have the opponents, right? And it's very dramatic, back and forth, it's narrative. And then you hit this list, and then in chapter 4, verse 1, you resume. Pastor JJ will be hitting the play button next week, and you'll resume the narrative. But we're not resuming it right now. We want to stand still and gaze at a picture of the restoration of the wall. Keep looking. Ask the Lord for much insight. This picture is dazzling beyond words. It is so engaging that it can change and transform you, your family, your surroundings, Veritas. What is this picture? Is what we're going to take about 30 minutes to look at. And then we're going to close. Well, why? Why would an inspired writer of Scripture... Start with such an engaging narrative, pause, put a list in, and then resume the narrative. Why? Let's pick up the what. This is a picture. If you have your pen out, you can write a simple sentence down. God gives to those who trust in Him. That's the big idea. God. Who is God? Well, in chapter 1, Pastor Garrison preached a stimulating message on the God of heaven, right? Remember that? Great and awesome, the God of heaven came down to earth and touched Nehemiah. And then he placed his powerful hand on Nehemiah. The God of heaven comes down to earth and enters into Nehemiah somehow some way, and puts his mighty hand upon Nehemiah, somehow some way. And Nehemiah comes out and says, "We will succeed." Look at the last verse of chapter two. It says, "The God of heaven will make." us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. That's where I'm starting to get this big idea, this this word picture, this big picture. It's about God. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about Nehemiah. It's about God. God gives, and then all these servants of the Lord are trusting him and receiving from him. What does he give according to this Big, bold, I'm going to call it a watercolor portrait on a canvas. Well, the first thing he gives, God gives a pardoning mercy to those who trust in him. And in this watercolor portrait on this beautiful big canvas, he dips his paintbrush in and starts painting with red This incredible picture that we're going to look at. It's a pardoning mercy. Look with me how the list starts. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and then they start building. Anytime you're in the Bible and you see a list, this is one way how an author highlights importance of first importance. And then in the list, the first one there is usually the most important one there, the highlight. You're supposed to pay attention to this one mostly. Eliashib, the what? The high priest. Instantly, as we remember the storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, this big, broad, glorious epic, we know that the high priest was very important in the Levitical system. We know that the high priest Once a year went into the temple and the Day of Atonement would slaughter a sheep for the remission of sins. That was his purpose in life. Why would he start with Eliashib, the high priest? As you listen to it more and more, you heard him three times more in this passage. Eliashib, 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 four times in thirty-two verses why moreover he talks about the priests then he ends verse one with they built the sheep gate they consecrate it set it apart the sheep gate what he starts in the north to northeast part of the wall and this whole list does the contour of the wall In a counter circle, he goes around the wall. And then in verse 32, where does he end? You can blurt it out if you want. The sheep gate. So another way biblical authors communicate is the top and tail or the beginning and the end. When you see those bookends, you go What is he saying? And now we see the starting point of this restoration of the wall is the closest part to the temple. Temple language and temple imagery and temple itself is so widely important in the Bible. Do you start seeing it? This is where the sheep would come in to the temple, and they're not pets. They're getting slaughtered on behalf of, of God's people's sins, to wash them and to restore them and, and to point them to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what's going on here in a big, broad stroke of red on this canvas. He starts with a high priest. Oh, jot down Hebrews 4. Read carefully verses 13 and following into chapter 5. You will see that we have a great high priest who is Jesus himself. And we have confidence to enter into the holy of holies because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet was without sin. Therefore, let us cling to this confidence and enter in with great assurance to receive mercy and to enjoy grace in time of need. Why would he start with this? This is 445 B.C. They don't know what we're talking about here, but it's an echo. It's a foretaste. It's a marker. It's a pointer. It's a type of someone who is coming and something that he's going to do. This list starts off with the most crucial piece to this grand storyline of the Bible. And that is a pardoning mercy that provides forgiveness and access. Forgiveness is not the ultimate that Christ has given us. That is a means to an end. If guilt can be lifted up and taken away and our conscience can be clear, we just feel better. But it is a means to access to the Holy of Holies so we can have a right relationship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a, a, a beginning glimpse of something grand and glorious that's coming their way in 445 BC down through 300, 200, 100 and then into Jesus Christ's life. So we see here that God gives to those who trust in him, first, a pardoning mercy. The second thing that I see as we just listen to his word and ask for much grace to have insight into his word is God gives not only the pardoning mercy, but then a participating community. Did you, did you catch that? We won't go through the list because I probably couldn't go through the list. But there is a repetition that is very stark here, and that's another way the Bible writers would highlight. Remember, they don't have yellow highlighters to go shh, shh, shh and say, look at this. But they do that through repetition. Fifteen times, I count it, maybe you'll recount and say there's 16, there is... And next to them, and next to them, and next to him, next to, next to, next to, next to, over and over and over and over, all through the list were these people who were coming from a faraway land as well as right in Jerusalem, and they're building the wall next to, next to, next to one another. What I'm seeing here is... And a, 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 a highlight is a participating community. There's a lot of work being done here, but there's a unification. There's, there's unity in this list. And he says that with those words, next to, all through the list. It, it, it's like they, they showed up for work. They would greet one another from afar. Eliahub, how are you doing? Hey, Jabako, Good good to see you. Got a good night's sleep last night? Great. I'm a little tired, but I'm really excited to work. Okay, well, we'll see you in a little bit. And they were next to one another as they were working through this about 40 sections, if you count them, of the wall that surrounds the city that surrounds the temple. So there's unity in this participating community, right? Right? But, th- but there's also this, this sense of diversity. It fascinated me as I looked through this group and, and started plotting out some some things here. First I saw giftedness. Did you, did you see that in there? There were goldsmiths. There was perfumers. There were merchants. Th- th- there, was, there was the guild or the group. And and so there are professionals coming to to serve. A very mundane, common, in the rubble to restore this, this wall. We also saw priests. They had the guild called the priesthood. And there's a fair amount of them in here. We look at those and we saw administrators. We saw rulers and governors. This is a highly diverse group that's getting dirty and rolling up their sleeves and working hard, 52 days of work. I told the people who were watching our kids this morning, it took 52 days to complete this, and I'm going to try to complete this message in 52 minutes. And they said, oh, get it a little shorter, so I'll try. And so, when we look at these people, we also see many names. We see one, Maranoth. That's interesting in verse four, in Ezra eight thirty three. He's the only one that I could see that was a, like a cherished priest who knew Ezra and Nehemiah. So now here is not not a celebrity, but people know him and he's beloved. And then he shows up again in verse twenty one working on another section. That's interesting. And and, and then we see a bunch of names, but then we see no names, no namers. How would you like to be in a list? Here's the credits. And you go, "Um, inhabitants of Tokoa. I was part of that. Are you an inhabitant? I remember recently um, in the hospital, uh, Lisa and I were with our son, and uh I was totally honored with this. Please hear that. So I'm at this this elevator, and this doctor passes me and he stops and he turns and he says, You are Seth's father, aren't you? And I went, I am. And it just reached my heart. But I thought, Seth's father. I have a name, you know. I I I am a a person. I'm not <laughs> You hear that in this list. There there are no names that mean so much in this building project. Men of Jericho, verse 2. To verse 5. Men of Gibeon, one of the perfumers. Inhabitants of (laughs) Zechana. Who are these people? The point is that there are no names. And some of you serve here even in Veritas. And you feel like, well, I'm not as popular as (laughs) Manoah. Probably not. So we are together diversified and giving to a building project. It's okay to be a no-name in God's kingdom. It's awesome. And so we're looking at diversification. We see a diversified group in terms of gender. There a bunch of males around here, but then you come to verse 12, and here you see Shalom. Shalom is a very powerful man. He's the ruler of half the district in Jerusalem, which is the most prominent city known to Judaism. And here's this prominent man. I'm sure his daughters had everything they needed. And look at verse 12. Daughters in charred, rubble, smelly ruins, restoring the wall with their daddy. It reminds me a little bit of Veritas. I look out at Veritas, and I see beautiful, feminine, biblically sound ladies who sweat i love it you guys actually guys you gals actually sweat and you're rolling up your sleeves and you're involved in things that's what's going on here this is very diversified group that we see in here age it's it's varied all over the place what do we see Diversification in age, in gender, in education, in ethnicity. There are people way out from Jerusalem. Listen to this. Jerusalem is right in the center. And then verse 2, you have Jericho. Jericho is directly east. It's not a pleasant experience to walk from Jericho to Jerusalem it's dangerous. You can read that in the Bible. You're going into wilderness, and there's it's rugged, and you're going up and down. I've walked that area before. It truly is difficult and dangerous, and bandits are out there, and it's not pleasant. Thirteen miles away, according to archaeology, a good day's travel is about 20 miles, 18 miles, because it's on foot. So these people are almost taking a whole day to get there. Jericho, there's places in it that are very um, prominent and 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 um, opulent, a lot of money and things there. And then there's a real poor section in there. Who are these people? And then you go up to verse 7, and you see Mizpah and Gibeon, about eight and five miles north-northwest of, of Jerusalem. The farther north you go, the more liberal your view is. Jerusalem is the most conservative place. So you, so you have e- economics, you, you have even political, uh, somewhat theological, uh, more moderate, or, or it's just different people coming together shoulder-to-shoulder to shoulder in this kind of work, Zenoa, Drop down southwest about nine miles. Bet-shur, 15 miles, verse 16, down south. Decoa verse 5, 10 miles south. This is an area that is arid, that is wilderness, that, that thinks and acts differently than the city completely. There's no walls around these towns. They're very vulnerable. They're out there. They're close to Arab land. It's just a different place down there. All these people are traveling, sacrificing, coming in. Diversification is what we're to see in the participating community of God. We see unequal activity. Merrimoth. He, he works at two places. The Tekoites. You see them in verse 5, and then they pop up in verse 27 saying another section we want to do. It's interesting. Look at this one, verse 13. Some group repaired a thousand cubits of the wall. And some groups repaired just a door. And they're all in this together and they're all valued and valuable to this work. Uh, 1,000 cubits. That didn't mean anything to me. I started looking at it a little bit at home. I got out my calculator, 18 inches per cube. And so there's 1,500 feet of wall that these people restore. That's a huge project. So I did a little bit more on my calculator, and I got it down to 500 yards and I'm in my living room and I look out my, my window and I, I see Fairmont High School football field. I love football. And I looked at that and I went, five football fields end to end <gasps> is the part of the wall that these, this group worked on. Do you see the point? This is a unified next to one another, yet diversified in views and and uh, and gender and and activities and levels of commitments. You even see in chapter five or verse five that the nobles wouldn't stoop to do such work. So yeah, in the midst of really cool things in church life. You see these folks who don't participate. It's life, isn't it? This is real stuff in this picture. So we see God is giving. God gives to those who trust in him a pardoning mercy, a participating community. And then lastly, we see a particular mission. Now, if this watercolor portrait on this big canvas, first of all, is painted in red, and then it bleeds out a bit to a far, far far-reaching mercy, then you see green, and that's that community that's building each other up and working together and full of life. And now the last color that they paint this picture is a, a yellow that extends into darkness. This is a particular mission. We can't miss this piece. What are they doing? They're building a wall. <laughs> if we miss that, I think we miss the picture. So then you say, well, what the heck? I mean, are we supposed to start building a wall? No. No. We look at this. What is a wall for? Anyone? Protection. Yeah. So there's a defense, and you see that in here. You see towers, you see buttress, you see mighty men of valor. You see that they're vulnerable without this protection around them. And so they're building this wall because of protection. And yet, when you look at it a little bit more, you start seeing something perhaps even different. You start seeing not just a defended people, but a defined people. Here's what I mean. This wall is a demarcation around a certain particular people. Inside, you you have a certain activity. Outside, you have a certain identity and activity. Let me try to explain it a little bit this way. The wall is found everywhere in the Bible. Do you recall the first time the wall is seen? I'll speed up the process. But in in Genesis chapter 3, they are exiled because of sin. They meaning Adam and Eve. And remember, now there is a separation, a wall. And there are swords that keep people from coming in and accessing because wickedness came in, a slithering snake, and it destroyed and ruptured the whole human race. And then you go into the tabernacle and you go into the temple and you work it through in the Old Testament and you start seeing this wall. And it doesn't stop there. At the end of our glorious book called the Bible, the wall You see, again, if you want to turn there, it's very interesting. Revelation 21, 21 verse 12, he's describing the new heavens and the new earth. And it had a great high wall. You see that in verse 12? Drop down to verse 14, and the wall of the city had, and it describes it. And then you drop down to verse 18, the wall was built of... And then you drop down to verse 22, and now you see in the city. And then there's a description, an incredible description of in the city. And then verse 27 says, But nothing unclean will ever enter the city. And then it ends in chapter 22, verse 14. Blessed are to those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter. The city by the gates. Verse 15, outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, sexually immoral, the liars, the disobedient, so on and so forth. And so our book ends with this massive look at the city that has sprawled out the temple that has sprawled out the actual garden temple that has gone clear through all of creation. The new heavens and new earth expand clear out to the cosmos, clear out to the universe. And then there's a wall, metaphorically, don't think physically, but a wall that, that separates and defines people. There are categories inside, outside. If you are inside, you are a certain people group. If you are outside, you are a certain people group. Does that make sense? This wall, being built, is defending and defining God's people. Colossians chapter four verse six said, "Live in wisdom in front of the outsiders." It's wall imagery. We even do that here every single week. We, we are moving towards now communion. And you will hear almost a wall-like. All insiders, all who are regenerate, who are converted, who are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are members of this body, they're insiders, they're safe, they're, they're secure, eternally so. But outsiders are not allowed such sacred elements. There is still that wall. And what this mission is about is defending and defining people and, and, and extending this to the uttermost parts of the world. It's not to keep people out per se, but it's to define these people so that we have evangelism and and God's grace bringing people in through the gate. John chapter 10, Jesus is the sheep gate. Very interesting. And coming into the inside. This particular mission, in other words, is the Great Commission. This passage is telling us three basic categories all through the Bible, cross, community, and commission. And when we look at it carefully, and it's tied into the, the grand meta narrative of the Bible, we see the picture of the Bible. We see the storyline of the Bible. That is what this list is about. I have to ask the question now. So what? Why did he put it here? Why did he stop the movement of the narrative and stick it right here? I wondered about that. I think it's for this reason. I think it's for you. I think it's for me. It is for future readers of this text giving them reason for hope. The future readers would read this text, reflect upon the history, the theology, the story of the text, and would think upon the prophecies and say, I am living proof. We are living proof that God's word stands. His claim and plan cannot be thwarted. If you do any reading about post-exilic Judaism, you'll see 300 A.D., 200 A.D., or excuse me, B.C., and it's bleak, and it's that 400 years of silence. God isn't speaking prophetically, but it's captured in the book, and they're reading this list, and future generations would hear those words, hear those names, and say, that's my great, great, great granddaddy worked on that. I know about him. I've heard the stories about him. Those daughters, my my mama tells me that that's our great-great-great-grandma did that. And so there's a connection and there is a stability and there is an assurance that what God says he will do. And we collectively have these kinds of lists to tell us that we're using the words of Job. Who, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No purpose of yours. He who began a good work in us will finish it to the end. He is building his kingdom in and through our lives. And we are to be participating members of this community washed and cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, fully and utterly secure for all eternity, and then rise up and say, I want to build. I don't want to make excuses. I want to make disciples. I want to make disciples who are defined and defended in a way that they will find this cross unresistible. and and, and, and desire to spread the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ into troubled and darkened places. That is what this picture is all about. And I pray that as we look at this picture, and as you revisit this picture, and as we listen to Nehemiah continue to be preached, we will be reminded what God has said, God will do. All his prophecies, all his promises are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. It stands and nothing will thwart his work. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for Nehemiah chapter 3. I want to thank you for preserving your word down through the ages. I want to thank you that we have copies of your precious word in our laps, and I pray that it will be in our hearts, that our imagination will be so populated by this storyline that this makes sense, and we will follow you all the days of our lives. We lift this up in Christ's name. Amen.